This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Mary Tanucci is a clinical social worker in private practice and a social work professor. She teaches in the graduate program at Walden University in the Barbara Solomon School of Social Work. Her private practice that she has named Think in Possibilities is based in St. Paul, Minnesota. There, she provides clinical supervision for social workers who are pursuing their next level of licensure in the social work profession and coaching for clients who are seeking support for personal and professional development. In her work, she integrates her love of poetry and journaling as a healing practice, her belief in the principles of positive psychology to support emotional health, and a variety of creative practices that support personal growth, professional development, self-care, and overall well-being. Each facet of her work clinical social work, group work, coaching, supervision, training, consultation, and teaching is informed and fueled by attitudes of hope, creativity, and inspiration. Her work is focused on supporting the personal growth, professional development, and transformation of all her students and clients. In your own words, who is Mary Tanucci? <laughs> what a great question. <laughs> Mary Tanucci is a person uh, who carries a lot of identities, and each of them are super important and sort of inextricable from one another. Social worker comes to mind right off. It's really important to me, um, the work I do for a living. And it's, in fact, I don't know, probably one of the most important aspects of who I am in the world. And then secondly, I am a person who identifies as a lesbian. I'm a person who has a life experience of deep estrangement from my family. And those two pieces absolutely informed who and why I became a social worker, which I think is very interesting and why I feel like they're inextricable about who I am. So while I'm, I'm certainly a daughter, um, I'm a sibling of six siblings, um, those pieces don't feel relevant in my life as a 53-year-old person who's been estranged from my family for 30 years. But certainly those are pieces of who I am. I'm a partner, and I, I've only recently become to use the language of wife. I never thought I would use the language wife in my life. 
I'm a dog lover. I'm a, um, a water lover, need to be by the water as I sit here talking with you. I happen to be at my lake place up in northern Minnesota looking out at the water. It's beautiful. I love the, uh, I'm a uh, United States citizen and I love uh, the East Coast. I love all things ocean and water. And yet I feel so weird and out of place in the West. So California, Seattle, I just feel I don't fit there. I feel like in some ways I must have lived another life on the East Coast, but I have to be by the water. So those are pieces that come to life about who I am. Yeah, that's wonderful. Mm, the water, yeah, that's such a wonderful element, right? <laughs> so before we talk about healing strategies, I have a few warm-up questions, uh, as I mentioned, off record. The first one is, what is well-being to you, Mary? Mm, what is well-being? Immediately coming to mind is this idea of feeling rooted or grounded um, somehow, someplace, both in the physical world, but also just in yourself, in oneself. And I happen to be a person who's, I feel like I need to be in relationship. I'm with another um, intimate person. Um, so that's a grounding force for me. Well-being in relationship has to begin with a sort of grounding and rootedness in oneself before you can bring that sense of well-being to another person or to a relationship. So it's this idea of having a place to begin, almost like home, having a home base within yourself. Right. That sounds really good to me. It makes me think about balance or the idea of balance. Yes. And, you know, of course, in life, in different moments in life and life in general, there's always so much to make sense of, to manage, to navigate to balance. And again, without having that sort of rooted sense of oneself, I am here, I am home, I'm steady. One can't manage and balance all that comes at us. True. That is so true. I'll be uh, asking you more questions about how we begin even to live this kind of life. What is another word for healing? I don't know. The words well-being come to mind, healing, Peace, a sense of peacefulness. What is the meaning of freedom to you? Interesting. I was thinking about this interview today as I was preparing and thinking about what I might like to share. <clears throat> and this idea, again, of what is my job in the world? What, why am I here? What's, what am I to contribute? And having, again, grown up in a family where I didn't have a voice, and once I had a voice as a young adult, it wasn't accepted. So for me, early in my young adulthood, it became very important to, to live out loud. And moving around in the world without having a voice is, I think, a really um, ca a caged feeling. And the opposite of being able to live out loud, live your truth, have a voice, that's freedom. Yes, a thousand times, yes. <laughs> um, at this time, what do you think is the world's greatest need? And what is your vision for a new reality? Oh, interesting time to ask that question. What's the world's greatest need? To me, it's, it's always been my need and my view of what the world needs, which is human connection. 
And so here we are living in this age of pandemic where (laughs) human connection is very challenged and interrupted and interfered with. And I think, I don't know, we're not meant to be isolated. We're not meant to be disconnected from one another. Um, And so I think the world needs social workers, mental health providers, (laughs) spiritual people to build those bridges and build those vehicles um, to which people can remain connected and not be alone, to not be isolated. So I think we need people to support all things human connection. We're also living in a time when the world is so divided, you know, take away pandemic, we're just in a divided space. And so how do we continue to help people find their way in conversation to one another that allows people to remain connected and not cut off. Mm, Yes, right. That makes me think about this, uh, what's happening now as an opportunity to reflect upon these, um, the kinds of connections that we want to make with one another, because we see a lot of what you just said, separation and unhealthy ways of connecting. So it might be an opportunity to reflect on those um, areas too. What is love to you, Mary? Acceptance, accepting another human being for who they are in the world, how they are in the world, a belief in another human's worth, that love shines through that when we really believe another human being has value and worth. Yeah. What, where, and who is God to you? (laughs) The water. God is the water. God is... (laughs) Yeah, God is, um, yeah, really present for me, you know, a a spiritual energy anyway is really present for me when I'm at the beach or at the lake. Um, And I know some people talk about like the, um, their experience of a spiritual nature being in the mountains or being in, in, in nature in the forest. I don't resonate with that at all. So what's, what that says to me is that God is wherever any person experiences. So for me, that is, that is most definitely the beach, the water, the ocean, the lake. But for another, that may not be. Yeah, yeah. So the experience of God is in a way very personal. Very personal. Yeah. Do you see any difference between spirituality and religion? Absolutely. Um, And I see myself, um, I don't ascribe to a particular religion. I was raised Catholic and um, have not been a practicing Catholic since I was 18 years old and understood that the church said I didn't have a place, the church, capital C. But most definitely I've always experienced and have a belief that there's something greater than us in this human field. And I really see and experience that spiritual sense that I can call on a higher being, a higher love for my ability to keep moving forward in the world in a, in a, in a way that gives me life. Yeah, I like that. So my, my last warm-up question relates to the purpose of life. Um, what do you think is the purpose of life, the human experience? To love and be connected. Yes. Yeah, in a healthy way, I would add. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, you said love, right? So that says it all. <laughs> right. right. So let's talk about your work. When did you decide to become a social worker? Um, midway through college, I was a psychology major and a social work minor. And I don't remember how or why I had this conversation with a professor who later became a friend. Um, that person said to me, you know, I, I think you would be wise to get a double major and uh, a, a minor in social work is relatively obsolete. Why don't you get a, a major and leave um, your college experience with an opportunity to be a licensed social worker? Yeah, that was 1988 when I graduated, and um, that was the first year Minnesota began licensing social workers. So I was immediately, you know, took the test and was licensed as a licensed social worker in Minnesota, and that really opened a lot of doors for me. So midway through college, when I was making that change, I remember speaking to my dad, and he said, oh my goodness, why do you want to do that? You, you know, we have enough of our own problems to take care of in life. Why do you want to take care of other people's problems? And I thought it was such an interesting take on what it meant to be a social worker. And I also thought it was really contrary to how he raised me, which was to always care about those with less than you and to, you know, to, that we had a job to do as in, in this case, uh, as a good Catholic, um, you know, to care about those with less. And um, so I was kind of, saddened by his response, but I did pursue it and um, landed as a social worker in a community center in St. Paul. And it was a really excellent kind of training ground for understanding what were the needs in the city of St. Paul, where I live in Minnesota, and and also what were the services available. And I did everything from um, doing counseling with little kids, middle school kids and elementary age kids and running groups and summer camp kind of programs to working the uh, food shelf and doing holiday bureau to support families like Toys for Tots sort of experiences, helping families get their utilities turned back on. Um, so it was a really excellent sort of continuum of uh, the needs of that community. And then I went on to be a school social worker within about three years of early in my career. And so then my career really became about working on behalf of um, kids in middle school and high school who were at risk for a number of reasons. So when I was in college, I didn't know that that's what I would do, but I knew that I wanted to be in a profession that cared about other people and that wanted to make a difference in a positive way with those who had barriers or were less advantaged. Yeah. How wonderful. Yeah. That's really wonderful. Making that choice consciously. That's beautiful. And I love that that experience of having my mentor help me understand the logistics of what it would have meant for me to graduate college with a degree in psychology versus graduating from college with a degree in a licensable field. And I'm forever grateful for that because it really did provide me immediate opportunities to, to work in direct practice in a way that might have taken me a lot longer had I not gotten a social work degree. Right, right. Um, I never heard this um, term. I, I know very little, I guess, about social workers. I know they care a lot about people. They, they take a lot of different roles. So um, there are different kinds from, from what I see. But what does it mean clinical social work specifically? So when I first got out of school, I was licensed at the kind of ground foundational level, licensed social worker in Minnesota. And that means that I could work in a lot of human services areas. 
So in, again, working in a community center sort of basis, a clinical social worker has a graduate degree in social work, so an MSW, a master's degree, and is licensed at that next level, then that a licensed graduate social worker has to practice for two years under supervision. But once you sit for that final level of licensure, which is the clinical license, one can do therapy, can do diagnostics for mental health disorders, um, bill insurance. Yeah, that, those are the three levels of practice. And clinical simply means being able to work with a DSM-5 and diagnostic assessments. And again, you know, I could hang up a shingle and be a therapist. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I didn't know that, Mary. Yeah. Thank you for explaining. And each each state is a bit different, but uh, nonetheless, most states in the United States are um, have that sort of levels of social work practice and licensure. Okay. Mm, yeah. Thank you for the education. <laughs> Now I know. And I love that it has a lot to do with therapy yeah, and healing. So um, let me talk to you for a moment about your book. Um, what was the inspiration and the intention for writing your book, A Daily Gratitude Journal, Think in Possibilities? So remember that book is not really a book. It is simply a line journal. And my, my inspiration for creating such a tool is really a belief in um, there are very concrete practices that Research, research tells us um, improves the well-being and mental health of each one of us. And one of those practices is keeping a gratitude list daily, being intentional about maybe each morning or each night or both, even writing down three things to which you are grateful or for which you are grateful in the morning or three things in the evening um, when you reflect on your day, what you're grateful for. Um, doing that over a period of time, research shows us that it has an absolute positive impact on our overall well-being and mental health. So I'm wanting to create all sorts of tools like that. I also happen to be a person who has written in a journal since I was 13 years old and know for sure that it saved my life throughout as a as a someone in some ways a sacred practice of journaling. Um, most definitely it was the space in which I had a voice. Um, and it was the way that I made sense of what was happening in my life along the way. So I'm wanting to really support other people to know that there are some very simple practices that have, <laughs> that, that pack a big punch in terms of our outcomes and our overall well-being and mental health and daily journaling. Um, free writing, daily journaling with very specific prompts, um, daily journaling that has a focus on gratitude. Those things are absolutely helpful. So I'm really in the process of trying to create all sorts of, you know, line journals, prompted journals, um, and specific journals to help people pick up these practices. Right. Yeah. I love the way you say sacred and, um, uh... That's so important to create this um, this experience where we can voice our feelings. What is that about writing that it's so healing? Yeah, I I don't know, but that beyond knowing what I know from the inside out, having been a person who's used writing as a way to take care of myself and to understand my life and to make sense of my life, I was I, as I said, I started writing in a journal when I was 13 years old. At age 32, 
one summer in writing in my journal, out popped a poem and it surprised the heck out of me. And I loved it. And in my whole life from 13 to 32, I never saw myself as a writer at all. Um, Writing was for me, was about making my way in the world. But at 32, when this poem pops out, and by the way, it was called Joy, I went around showing my friends, look at this poem. Oh my goodness, I love this poem. And I never had considered or even remembered taking a course in poetry ever. Um, But it sent me right to the local um, writers workshop called The Loft. It's an organization that does writing classes. And I took, I don't know how many beginning poetry classes and would find myself in the aisles of, you know, um, Barnes and Noble looking at all the poetry books. And right during that same time, I learned of something that was new to me, which was spoken word poetry. And I knew immediately that spoken word poetry, which is so rooted in marginalized voices, having a space to be heard, um, that that spoken word poetry would speak to the kids that I was working with at the time in the St. Paul Public Schools. And so that, that moment in time, writing a poem in my journal for the first time, seeing myself as, oh my gosh, maybe, I, maybe I'm a poet, maybe I'm a writer, And that shift from a personal practice to take care of myself shifted to maybe I have some doors to open for kids, Um, launched a whole nother level and layer of my professional work, integrating poetry and poetry therapy and poetry and writing as a way of healing into my school social work practice with middle school and high school age kids. It was a game changer for me. Yeah. Yeah, it makes so much sense. That goes back to um, what we talked earlier about the idea of God being this personal experience. So writing seems to bring that kind of um, this space uh, so we can connect with this higher force, divine force. Right. Years ago, and when I was in therapy myself, which I've been in therapy my whole life because I'm a lifer and just that has been a vehicle for which I've come to make sense of my world and to find my way. I remember um, struggling to come out to my first, first therapist. And I remember her saying to me, who do you think I am? You know, you're here and I'm here for you to be able to talk out loud with yourself. And that's how she really saw the experience of therapy. And I think writing and poetry, therapy, journal therapy, it's very similar. It's this is a vehicle to which I can talk out loud to myself and maybe to a higher being. Um, and to make sense of the world, make sense of my daily life um, in a sacred container, in a healing space, in um, a trusted arena. Right. That's also a very important state of mind. Uh, Trust, so important for healing. No doubt about that. So let me see. My next question is about your own experience with um, healing strategies. I know you use poetry. We've been talking about poetry therapy and also talk therapy you just mentioned. Talk to me about uh, loving kindness, meditation or mindfulness, um, gratitude, um, your book or the guide that you have written. Also, thank you notes, uh, group work. Is there one strategy that works more effectively than others? Or for you, which one was more effective? For me, I know the writing and um, the therapeutic use of poetry and my own healing was just like central. I do believe that 
again, each person's going to find what, what they resonate, what they most resonate with or um, what they're more apt to draw from. I, I spent a, a number of years doing some learning from the inside out and some reading and workshops around the idea of mindfulness and practices of meditation, practices of yoga um, and mind body sort of connected connectedness in the healing process. And those really have made a remarkable difference in my own life. What I come back to time and time again is writing. Um, but for another person, what they'll come back to time and time again is mindfulness and meditation practices in a daily way. Um, some writers that just writers, thinkers, practitioners that have made a huge difference in my own journey related to mindfulness and meditation are Tara Brock. Uh, she's a Buddhist psychologist and amazing and Pema Chodron. Um, and Kristen Neff is also, I think, a psychologist and, um, I learned a lot about this idea of loving kindness and, you know, that recognizing that without offering that loving kindness to ourselves, we cannot possibly model or offer it to another human. And that was a lot of work for me during um, the period of time that I was interested in that um, and that work. Um, but yeah, for me, I come back time and time again to picking up a book of poetry for solace and or doing writing in my daily journal um, or listening to poetry is wildly healing for me. Yeah, you're very connected to poetry, which is a wonderful art form. Um, what are the thank you notes? How do we uh, create or use them? Yeah, um, in terms of you asked, how do we know or how does how is it that writing makes such a difference? And, you know, I certainly know that from the inside out, but research also gives us a lot of information about the power of using journaling, writing as a healing force, um, much like the research that's been done about um, what happens to our biology when we pet a dog, our blood pressure drops, our heart rate lowers. Um, the same research has been conducted on people who are using journaling. Um, and so there's a, a researcher, his last name is Pennebaker, I think, um, who's done a lot of research about the biological and obviously emotional impact of journaling for mental health. And there's just great um, outcomes. Um, I learned about um, a field of practice that I think I just intuitively operate from, which is positive psychology. And Martin Seligman is the sort of grandfather or father of uh, positive psychology. And he, um, he speaks of, again, more research that says people who do those gratitude lists daily. Um, additionally, people who write a thank you note um, on a regular basis to someone who's done something kind, that there's something um, uh, quantifiable about how that shifts our emotional state. Um, so I love that. And, you know, in today's day and age, when we're so online and we're less apt to pick up a greeting card or mail a written letter, especially powerful. Um, during this um, age of pandemic, I have an auntie who lives in upstate New York and I live in Minnesota and um, she's an older person, probably about 85 and lives alone. And I've been very worried about her. So I've been writing her probably two letters a week knowing, and I just love knowing that she's going to go to her mailbox and find this physical representation of this fact that I'm thinking about her and that I love her. 
So I, I'm really informed a lot by uh, positive psychology and those very concrete practices and very simple practices have been researched and studied to show really great improvement in one's emotional yeah, health. Yeah. yeah, most of them connect back to self-love. So I guess I'll ask you this question. Do you believe in unconditional self-love? I believe in it. And some days better than others, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> in terms of... Um, <laughs> I was talking with a, a supervisee. I provide clinical supervision to uh, social workers just beginning in their professional life. And uh, this person was talking about a real desire to, a desire and a readiness to really do some really important work around um, understanding herself as a white practitioner, often serving clients of color and really doing some deep work around race and racism and just getting all of that. And we also were talking about the deep work that any one of us, especially women, have to do around body image. And it was super interesting because she's a person who was really, um, that's the work she's been doing and feels very, you know, more than ready and very equipped to do that work. And the racism work feels daunting to her and she's, you know, stressed about it. And I'm the opposite. So here I am, this practitioner has been practicing for 30 years and feel, um, less daunted by this immense problem of our culture in the United States around race and racism. I've done a lot of work on it. That, that, that work never ends, but it doesn't, I'm not afraid of it. But the work around body image, wow, that's a whole different, that's a whole different um, ballgame for me. So it's just interesting, this idea of self-love. I feel in so many parts of my life, right on track and doing the work I need to do and not daunted or afraid of it or don't turn away from it. But that work is very difficult for me. Yeah, it sounds like, because we don't even know where to begin even. I'm mean, when I think about it, <laughs> how do we even begin? The only thing, I, practical thing that I can think about is um, what we have been talking here, healing strategies that very much connects to self-love. So it's all about cultivating that space within so we don't let the outside forces to affect us in a negative way. Right. Um, so speaking of social groups and the, their needs, uh, I know that's what you do. You integrate healing strategies that can help them. Yeah. How do you do it? What groups need the most this kind of healing work? Oh, wow. Each, each, one of, each one of us marginalized populations, you know, right? We all have our own dilemmas. And that's, what, that's one of the gifts I feel like I've been able to offer um, my professional arena, my professional world, um, my own internal personal process of coming out in my young adulthood and um, kind of navigating a world in which lesbian and gay people are marginalized. That's had a particular importance and meaning to me, especially early in my career. I worked on behalf of lesbian and gay young people in the school system. Um, and in this moment in time, my interest is really supporting young professionals in social work and really operating out of this belief that until we do our own work as practitioners in mental health, we cannot possibly walk with another and or, or to do so at all effectively. And so I really challenge those who I teach as a, I'm a social work professor and those who I provide clinical supervision for that I really challenge them and also provide them opportunities to 
try out these healing methods for themselves and to think about how will they bring that forward into their work in whatever context in which they work. Um, And that feels very powerful to me that I'm shaping um, and I have an opportunity to shape emerging professionals to step into uh, the profession having done their work and, and with an understanding that that work never ends, of course. Um, but as social workers, we have an extra responsibility. I, I tell my students all the time, you're not going to school to be an accountant. You're going to school to be a, um, a, a person in the helping profession, a person in mental health, a person in human services. Um, that calls on something different from you. And then I give them chances to practice these things that have mattered to me. Right. That sounds really good because I have been hearing a lot this term called burnout, but it affects especially social workers. So that is great that you're doing that because you're creating this awareness for healing because that's true. You can't really heal others if you are not healed yourself or not doing the healing work. Do you also talk about this term? Do you address burnout? with the healing strategies or? Yes. And recently I listened to a webinar and I can't remember his name. There's a psychologist from Carnegie Mellon talking about who, what does research tell us about who will fare well emotionally post, broadly speaking, post-crisis, and in this case, post-pandemic. And I've been sharing this information with all of my supervisees and all my students um, like crazy because it just makes so much sense to me. He talks about um, those people who can spend at least 51% of their mindset in this idea and understanding that, okay, this is temporary versus those who get kind of caught on the opposite, like, oh my gosh, this is never going to end. This call it the virus, this call stay at home orders, et cetera. Those who um, limit their exposure to the media and in fact limit the numbers of news sources from which they get information about this pandemic will fare better than those who don't. Those who seek art will fare better than those who don't. And better yet, those who make art and are creative during this period of time will fare better emotionally than those who don't. Those who recognize like what Mr. Rogers told us, look for the helpers. There's always a helper. Will fare better than those who don't notice. And better yet, those who become the helpers will fare better than those who even notice the helpers. Um, Those who people who get outside and move their bodies will fare better than those who don't. Just, I love all of those very concrete ways of supporting a healthy, in in my case, as I'm thinking about social workers, I want to support the social workers' health so that, in fact, they don't burn out, that they don't, I want them to fare best because they're being called on right now in so many arenas They're frontline workers. I have social workers who are working in child protection. I have social workers who are working in adult mental health hospital units. I have social workers who are working in the schools and right now trying to figure out how do I remain connected to children when I can't see them, right? So the social workers that I'm encountering right now and trying to support, I'm very aware that there are clients on the end of their service. So I got to buoy my people so that they can feel equipped, not burn out, and that they've got some creative practices 
that keep them afloat. And more than that, that they can share those creative practices of coping with their clients. Sounds like common sense. You're working with prevention in a way. So, so you wanted to prevent burnout, not just solutions for the problem. Uh, that's really great, Mary. Really wonderful. So would you like to add anything or read a passage from your book, which I know they're just prompts of gratitude, but if you'd like to read a poem, that would be great. <laughs> well, it's up to you. You, you can add anything. <laughs> I don't have one right off the top of my head, but I want to um, uh, highlight a poem that was written and has been gone viral around the world. It was written by an Irish poet or a Christian brother from Ireland. You might have seen it. It's called, oh my goodness, now I can't remember what it's called, but it's so beautiful. I'll, I will send it to you when we're done with this call because it's it's just really a spectacular um, poem for this period of time and life-giving, and yeah, I will send it to you. Okay, I'll post that with your interview profile too, since um, we mentioned the poem. Would you like to add anything that I have not covered with my questions, Mary? I don't. I want to say thank you. It's a really beautiful um, podcast and forum, and I love, um, I've been really enjoying listening to some of the other um, conversations that you've had thus far. Wonderful. Thank you for your presence and your wisdom. How do you define success these days? I think when uh, we show up full and authentic, most of what we're trying to achieve will be successful. I love that. Um, what was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself as of today? I don't have a good answer. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to give that some thought. <laughs> Maybe have learned all of them, which is, yeah, wow. That's what the healing work is all about. <laughs> um, if you knew you would die soon, meaning uh, leaving the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? I don't think so. Something doesn't come to mind right off. That's a beautiful feeling. Right. Maybe there's nothing to be changed, which means you're living the life you want to live. That's the best answer I get. <laughs> um, do you believe in life after death? I don't know. I don't know. You don't have any ideas. You don't talk about even. That's interesting. I don't have fear about it one way or the other. And I don't have a, um, a strong response that says, oh, absolutely or absolutely not. I don't know. That's the best I can offer. Yeah, thank you for your honesty. <laughs> what are three things about life you know for sure? I must be out loud. I must show up in my authentic skin. And life is about connection. Wow. Thank you so much for your genuine presence, for your um, sense of peace. It can be felt within your words and your wisdom. I love your wisdom. Thank you. Where can we find more information about you, your work, products, services, and future projects? Um, I think easiest would be my website, which is my business called thinkinpossibilities.com. Thinkinpossibilities.com. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much again, Mary, and we'll talk soon. Okay. Bye for now. To learn more about Mary Tanucci and her work, please visit www.thinkinpossibilities.com.
To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bigrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.